everyone and welcome to another Scott Swahey podcast and today I'm joined by author, poet and academic Mandy Haggith. Hello Mandy. Hello, thanks for having me here. Oh a pleasure and you are here because The Liar Dancer which is the third and final novel of the Stone Stories trilogy um, has just recently been published by Saraband Books. Yeah um, it's very exciting. Yeah I, so I, I thought because I see the Stone Stories as a real trilogy and I think you really need to read all three of them, you know, to get the, 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 the major picture. Um, so with that in mind, before we talk about the Liar Dancers, can we go right back to the beginning and the Walrus Mutterer? Um, why did you decide to, to begin these books? Okay, um, so I live in Ascent. I'm, I am the luckiest person in the world. I get to live in what Norman McKay called this most beautiful corner of the land. Um, and just up the coast from here, a few miles up the coast, is um, an Iron Age um, monument, so a ruin of a, um, a broch. So it would have been a 40-foot tall, double-walled tower um, more than 2,000 years ago. Um, and yeah, and so I, I was involved as a local interested person um, in a project run by Historic Ascent, which is our local history group, um, excavating it, and got really, really excited about that whole period um, of the Iron Age and what was going on there, what the culture was here, um, realised that people were, you know, a really sophisticated maritime culture. And then I discovered that there was this guy called Pythias who was um, from the Mediterranean, so part of the Greek Empire, who travelled around in 320 BC and he took measurements as he went along of how far north he was. And one of them is exactly here. Wow. And so then I, that triggered me off with the whole thing of like, oh, so was Pythias here? I mean, literally, did he, did he make landfall? And once, and that seemed, you know, everybody basically said yes, including... Professor Barry Cunliffe, who's the, the kind of world expert on Pythias, said it's perfectly plausible that, yeah, he came. And the excavation was showing that that broch was up, probably, when, um, when he would have come. And that seemed to me a fantastic premise for a work of imagination to, to ask, well, who did he meet? And what, what happened when this man from the Greek Empire turned up in Iron Age um, Celtic Scotland? So that was it, really. Uh, I, I didn't realise it was so closely based on real history. That's fascinating to know. Mm-hmm. Um, so was it always going to be a trilogy? Was this something that was as big as that, or did you just start with the first book and see where it went? Uh, yeah, I kind of started with the first book. And, I mean, my question was, well, who did he meet? So then everybody except Pythias in the book is fictional um, because we don't have any... He's the only historical character in the sense that he wrote a book. We, you know, we know um, what he um, did, where he was from, and quite a lot about him. Um, but we don't know anything about... The book is lost, by the way. If anybody right. finds a copy of On the Ocean from, from more than 2,000 years ago, then, yeah, um, then that would be very exciting. But, uh, um, yeah, everybody else is made up. So I started up by thinking, well, okay, so let's have... Who's the woman he met? And so that was Rianne. And then once I'd got her, then, then the, the book started, the novel started to unfold. And um, 
and then as as it as it turned out it became a very large thing that was in three parts um because i wanted to explore not only what what was going on from the perspective of people who were living here when when Pythias arrived but also what the world was like from his point of view and then and then it turned out what's what was the world like from other people's points of view as well and so kind of because of the fact that I got involved in multiple perspectives then it turned into this kind of three part piece but it wasn't until I actually submitted it for publication to Saraband that the decision was finally taken that it would actually be three separate books rather than one great big fat one um, right, I see. Yeah. And you talk about uh, multiple perspectives, and that really does run throughout the trilogy. Um, often, uh, subsequent chapters are different characters and like their look and what's going on. But interesting to me is uh, The Amber Seeker, which is the middle one, is really Pythias's story. Yeah. And when I read that, I thought, well, this is really brave and interesting because he's not exactly the most likable character to have around, and yet you're giving um, his side of the story if you like now knowing that he's the real character that kind of makes a bit more sense but was that something that you always wanted to do because at the beginning it's not necessarily his story no that's right um i i started the um writing from pythias's point of view as a bit of an experiment just to just to try to get to understand him a bit more um and then and that's how that whole kind of um volume came about and also because of the fact that so the so the middle volume the amber seeker actually starts before the walrus matter in chronological time um because it includes the bit of his journey from the mediterranean all the way up to northern scotland um and it carries on after the end of the walrus matter because it takes him all the way back home again um and and so i wanted to kind of find out what the rest of his journey involved and and cover that so that's how that that section came about um i do feel somewhat guilty about as you say he's not the most likable character and there's there's a sense in which i've kind of sullied the reputation of this of this historical explorer um in in a way that sometimes does give me qualms because i mean there's a lot of it which is based on the fragmentary um evidence that we have got about the man himself and surmise and the the research that um particularly um, Barry Cunliffe has done. Um, but there's also an awful lot of fiction in there. And the, you know, I've filled in a lot of the gaps with, um, with things which, um, yeah, which, which made it a novel and which, made, which were for me, I think, ways, I'm fundamentally interested in culture clash and, yeah. and conceptual difference and dis distance and the way in which different people see the world in different ways. And, and the kind of very central drama that plays out between Pythias and the, the the fictional woman Rianne, who he meets in in Ascent, was very much a, a kind of yeah. It's, it's a core thread in in the book that I wanted to explore, and I really wanted to, to explore it from both the male and the female perspective, even though that's a kind of challenging thing to do. Sure, I just there's a there's a description of him in the first book as part child, part god, part something else, which I thought was an amazing kind of description of this of this person. Um, this class of cultures is very interesting because I think, I, knowing only a little of the Iron Age of that time, you would not necessarily expect that this person from the Mediterranean would arrive in, because Ascent's right at the top of Scotland, for people that don't know, isn't it? It's, it's, yeah, uh, top left corner. Top left corner, yeah. yeah. Um, 
And so how unusual was that for, for that for someone to be from the Mediterranean to be around there, or was it more usual than I would think? No, as far as we know, he was the first. Um, you know, so he was a really extraordinarily intrepid explorer. Um, and it's interesting, it was at the same time that Alexander the Great was off kind of um, with his army off to the kind of um, Middle East. Um, and, well, and yeah, I guess they, he got as far as Afghanistan, didn't he? Um, Whereas Pythias, as far as we're aware, he didn't have an army with him by any means at all. He was just, he was a lone explorer, as far as we can tell. Um, and so, yeah, it's extraordinarily unusual. Um, and, but we know that there were boats plying the waters, trading up and down the Atlantic coast. Um, so, um, and there's lots of surmise in the book. I mean, things like, um, you know how he was traveling is a is a real issue mm -hmm. um and it's completely implausible that he would have been in his own boat because we know that the the boats that would have plied the mediterranean would would not have been atlantic seaworthy he wouldn't have been able to cross the bay of biscuit or whatever in in a boat like that um so the likelihood is that he was actually hitching rides on existing um boats that were Applying trade up and up and around the um, the Atlantic coast, and um, yeah, so hence he's travelling with a trader. So so the fact that there would have been people um, moving up and down the the coastline in boats, there would have been strangers, but the chances of them being all the way from the Mediterranean are you know, diminishingly small, and he would have been very unusual in that sense. Um, yeah. Um, how much? Did you relish the research? I mean, just going on to say, well, these boats that would have been in the Mediterranean wouldn't have made the journey. I, I speak to quite a few people who write historical novels, and I get the sense that they really relish their research. Yeah, the, I mean, there are lots of aspects to it. I and mean, one of them was I got involved, I got hired by the um, the team of archaeologists who were doing the dig at um, Plaxolbrock over several digs over the best part of a decade really um and to write the blog so i used to write the dig diary um which was which is great fun and meant that i could sit and tap the brains of the archaeological team on a kind of ongoing basis as i was as i was writing and of course because i'm an, a novelist i'm allowed to make things up whereas archaeologists it's a fascinating it's fascinating to work with them because from a professional point of view, they, they have to stick very firmly to the material evidence that they have for everything that they publish. So that, you know, they're, they're scientists and they need hard evidence for the claims that they make about what they're finding. But as they're actually engaged in the act of, of digging, of excavation, their minds run riot and they're constantly you know, making things up and speculating about who was here and what was life like and, you know, why did they build it here and, you know, how did they make their, their livelihoods? And so actually they're constantly fictionalizing in their, in their heads. They just don't write it down. So it's a great privilege to be able to be a, um, a writer and, and get a job like, you know, writing the blog because I, I could make stuff up. But actually a lot of the time I was, I was chatting away with the archaeologists and they were making things up and I would just, I would put it on the blog. So, um, so that was fun. And then the other big part of my research involved um, sailing. So Pythias did this extraordinary voyage from, the, from um, the Mediterranean all the way. He circumnavigated Britain. He went as far as the Arctic because 
Um, we know that in his some of the fragments from his um, his book, which is lost, but he, it was widely quoted by lots of other geographers and historians um, in the ensuing few centuries. Um, and so we know that he got to a place where the sea became slushy um, and where he met huge animals that spout fumes out of the, out of the sea, so the great way, um, whales. And then he went to a place where the, where the land burning came down to the sea, um, which we assume must be Iceland. Um, yeah, of course. All of which he was quoted, um, he was quoted as being a fantasist who was clearly trying to sort of pull the wool of sensible Mediterranean people's eyes, and that these things, you know, couldn't possibly really exist. But of course, we read it now and think, "Wow, that guy really did do an amazing voyage." Um, and he then sailed to the Baltic as well, and um, and so I wanted to go and see those places, and I wanted to experience the kind of um, ex yeah, the, the exploring the journeying that he would have done. So I've sailed up in Svalbard and um, and we got, me and my husband got completely hooked on, on sailing. And so we've done an awful lot of, of sailing in a small boat around the um, around the mansion up to Orkney and, and so forth. And uh, and most of the book, in fact, got written at sea. Um, it, oh. I discovered that, that, that actually um, one of the best ways to imagine the Iron Age is to go out to sea in a small boat until all the houses and buildings and, and 21st century developments have shrunk to little dots on the landscape. And the landscape is just as it would have been when Pythias arrived. Um, and the sea is the same and the winds are the same and the tides are the same and much of the wildlife is also the same. So it's actually really easy when you're on a little boat out in the out in the sea to kind of conjure that world that Pythias would have would have experienced. Um, so yeah, so that I mean, people joke about the fact that this is kind of method writing or something. Um, <laughs> but uh, but it's actually I found it really really helpful, and it would lead to some really funny situations with my with my husband. We you know if we if it goes completely calm and you're on a sailing boat. I mean the. We've got nylon sails and, and bits of steel and aluminium and stuff on the boat, but the basic physics of it is exactly the same as it would have would have been, you know. And um, and when this when the wind dries away, then unless you've got a team of people to row, you don't go anywhere, you know. You're just become. <laughs> and um, and we've got a perfectly good engine on our on our twenty first century boat, but I would refuse to use it <laughs> on the basis that well, Pythias didn't know an engine, so you know, in these circumstances, he'd just be stuck, and so. Um, my, my husband would eventually prevail on me that, you know, like there are limits to these things and we would, you know, a certain number of hours of, of, of floating around in an Iron Age sort of situation that is all well and good, but sometimes it's worth putting the engine on. So. Well, that makes real sense because I get the feeling um, right from the beginning that the, the life on sea is so vivid and it almost feels like you're from the boat and often you're on land looking at the boats and what's happening there, even if a lot of the action is on the boats. But this time around, it did seem to be viewed from the sea and then there would be these drop-offs at various points. But really, mm -hmm. the safety and the, the it was when they were all back on boat. Even if they were being chased, they were still kind of, you know, in their own little world back on those boats. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that, that it was it was the, the main highway, and, yeah. and when you do take up sailing and start exploring around, then um, 
the geography of the whole of, of northern Scotland changes um, dramatically and places that are we consider to be very remote and difficult to get to from each other are actually really easy by sea. So from, from Ascent to North Sky, for example, um, is, is a, a ridiculously long drive all the way down to, to Kyle, kind of, you know, three, three and a half hours down to Kyle and then all the way up to, you know, you know up, up to North, um, North Sky, let alone the few places where you can actually make ferry connections out yeah. to islands and so forth. Whereas if you're in your own boat, then those places are really, are really close um, and, uh, you know, much, much more accessible than they are in, in modern terms. And then the contrary can happen as well, that two places that you can get to quite easily by road on land in the modern day world can actually be really difficult to get to get between um, if you're actually having to navigate the currents and, and, and so forth. Um, on, on the sea. So yeah, the geography is quite different and um, it's changed completely my perspective of this part of the world. That's fascinating. Um, so despite us talking mainly about Pythias, this is really Rian's story, isn't it? You know, we see mm -hmm. her going from a young woman who is enslaved by the end mm -hmm. to matriarch. Um, so why was this the story you wanted to concentrate on? Why was it Rian's life? Yeah, okay, so there's a kind of core idea at the heart of the trilogy, which is about how, it's about greed mm. um, in some fundamental way, I think. Um, it's about the, the way in which trade starts to happen and become possible when objects are no longer um, specific to the individual who made them for, the, for their particular use, but become kind of generically swappable for other objects. Um, and that people, it, there's a kind of process of, um, of individual um, kind of um, individual consumption that goes beyond the bare necessities, which only starts to become visible in the in the archaeological record in the Iron Age. Right. Before then, pretty much people just only had the stuff that they needed to survive. And then you get some individuals who were clearly involved in conspicuous consumption in, in the Iron Age. And I'm interested in the way in which that comes about because kind of consumption way beyond what we need seems to be to a kind of defining issue of our of our age, as it were. Um, and so I was kind of interested in that. And part of that, that I'm no longer seeing each individual object as a sort of sacred thing in its own right but being just interchangeable with other objects is at the kind of heart of the idea of trade and and part of what was being traded at that point in the iron age is not only kind of gems and and food stuffs and textiles and so forth but also people yeah. and the very idea that you can trade a person and that you can buy and sell a person seems to me to be one of those those kind of very important fundamental ideas that um, that we need still to be looking at and and questioning and trying to understand because it's not gone it no. just it just hasn't yet gone um, and so it's quite interesting that I mean sort of also the idea that the, the sort of patriarchal idea that that which, which become it's all they're all it's kind of wrapped up in that I think the idea that you can possess that a man can possess a woman and do with her as as he will, is all, it's, it's kind of part of that kind of complex of ideas that I wanted to, to explore how those ideas might have originated and, um, and, and what, how, they, how they pan out within, within at the very early stages, I suppose, of that, um, that coming about. And, and those ideas, of course, are, are still really relevant today. And the sort of the whole Me Too movement was um, 
seemed to sort of arrive coincidentally with me writing this. And then it's been really interesting, actually, over the over the the Black Lives Matter situation that, um, you know, that consciousness that actually those fundamentally important ideas of treating people um, as as chattels has still, um, yeah, we haven't lost it yet. And we, we still need to be challenging those ideas. So, Absolutely. so it's the, those kind of concepts, which they're still relevant today that made me kind of interested in, in that, in that period as a place where we could kind of explore them at, at their earlier stage. And because partly because of the themes, what you've just spoken about, there are kind of heroes and villains in the book, but they seem to be a lot more nuanced than that. It was interesting by the time we got to the liar dancers that the character of Usa, mm-hmm. you start to have some sympathy for her, even though she was the one who first took Marina uh, away. Was that important to you to kind of not just have like black hats and white hats, but to have some kind of grey areas in there? Yeah, I think I'm fundamentally not really interested in in views that that turn the world into there are two kinds of people in this world the good good people and the bad people i just think that's a really oversimplistic view of how um how we are as people and we do genuinely my um and i've done a lot of research my phd was actually on disagreement and the, right. the fact that different bodies of people have got different value systems and ways of seeing the world and that um and that's it's very fundamental i think and and if we if we insist that our our particular perspective on the world is the only truth then things can kind of go kind of badly wrong from that point onwards um and i don't think anybody has a monopoly on on the truth and that and that we genuinely need to understand that there is a diversity of different ways of seeing the world and i also fundamentally believe that 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 there's no such thing as people who are inherently and irredeemably bad um mm-hmm. I, I somehow i've never kind of bought that idea and i think that even people who are, do do wicked things are are um yeah are, have probably got there's probably reasons in their past why they're doing those wicked things um and and understanding what under underlies um bad behavior um and and how it might possibly be challenged and changed i think it's really important for us that um otherwise we you know you just write people off when they're um when they they're criminal or something and I'm, i just and i just don't buy that so i kind of yeah i wanted my i really enjoyed writing you some she's a real baddie um she, you know she was a real villain um and um you know uh, and i and then for me it was really important also that the, the the kind of main villain of the piece is a woman as yeah. well. I think that that you know it would have been far too easy just to have kind of nice Celtic women being harassed by by nasty men, and, and that would be again far too simplistic. Um, and so yeah, I, I really wanted to explore the differences of um, and the possibilities of change. That, yeah. Um, yeah. And part of the ways that people do change by the time we get to the live dancers is the passing of time and growing older and things not, yeah. you know, not having the same power uh, uh, that maybe they had to begin with. I mean, it's a, it's the end of things, but in some ways it's the beginning of other things as well. But um, so was it that looking at a life over that time, not just one life, but a few because characters, you know, are there all the way through. Was that something mm. that you wanted to, to do? Yeah, I got, 
I didn't, it wasn't originally what I intended when I set out. Um, but I got kind of, I got really intrigued by what happened um, with Rianne when she became a mother and what, yeah. what that involved. And, and I, um, yeah, I think one of the things in, in my own personal life, I've never been a mother. Um, so, and it's kind of one of, one of the reasons I think that I write is actually because as a sort of compensation for the fact that I've not been able to be a mother. Um, but I have been a daughter. Um, and so I understand the kind of the, that mother-daughter relationship, but only from the perspective of being a, a daughter within it. Um, and I'm a sister and, and so forth. And so, um, so, I've, so I'm kind of, I was conscious writing Rianne that I was writing her as a mother, a role was, that, that I didn't know. Um, and yet I kind of could imagine what it was like to be her daughter. And so the, yeah, the liar dancers kind of came about partly, I think, because I wanted to explore what, what she would be like as a mother from the daughter's perspective. Um, and, and then that became multiple perspectives, of course, because yeah. she has more than one daughter. Um, and that in itself became, became an interesting um, part of the dy dynamic. But yeah, I guess perhaps also where I'm at in my life, it's, as you said, you know, years pass, people grow older, people, people change. And that seemed to be something that, that um, if I was going to be doing something on, on such a big scale, that, that, that needed to be part of it. Um, because, I mean, Usa in particular, when we first meet her in the Walrus Matter, it's such a strong kind of entrance. And then by the end, there's a kind of pathos and sadness about what she has become. I, this might be a weird comparison, but it reminded me in The Godfather of you, you see the young Corleone, you know, and who's full of kind of deceit and violence and all that thing. And then by the end, you've got Marlon Brando in the garden with his granddaughter. And it's this, this kind of, if you say people change, people are not one thing. They are not defined by one thing ever, really. Yeah. And I think also the live dancers, as you say, it is so much about family. And a kind of extended family as well. I mean, I often think by the end, Usa is almost part of that family. Yeah. Well, um, she is in the sense that she's related to Manigan. Well, so, that's, that's yeah. the other thing. Yeah, you've yeah. got all these weird, uh, unlikely. Um, well, you've got, I don't want to give anything away, but there are some revelations at the very end about um, relationships, which are, are a kind of are quite shocking to those who uncover them. And it's it's interesting that view of the daughter's view on the mother, because there are quite a lot of chapters which are the daughter's points of view. That's right, mm -hmm. isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, how did you? This might be difficult. How do you approach a character at the beginning? Do you then? Do they lead you with how they go through it, or do you have an idea of where they'll go? Do you know what I mean? No, they make themselves up. It's a very peculiar process, I find. Um, but yeah, they they seem to have their own. Yeah, they, they seem to have their own life. I mean, the, the joke is that, you know, for, for years, I, you know, I've, I've been 
in my shed make you know with a whole bunch of fictional and you know imaginary friends you know and then um, and then for this trilogy i was on a small boat where it was me and my husband and then a whole bunch of imaginary art and age characters kind of doing their own thing you know and uh, so yeah I, I do find that really intriguing that they it takes me a long time I, I write quite slowly um and and i and i generally let them do what they're going to do and, and they and they can surprise me um, which is, which is intriguing. I, yeah, I, still, I find it a little bit. Yeah, I mean, it must be a subconscious um, kind of process that that's going on. Um, you know, I don't I don't believe it's some sort of divine um, telling or, or something. Um, though I've got I've got people who sort of say, no, you're channeling something from from sort of some collective unconscious or something, but. So I don't really understand how that how that works, but but I just know that it does work and that the characters make up their own story. I wonder if it's almost like you know actors talk about researching a character and getting their backstory before we can go and do it, and maybe because you're with them all, all that time, you're almost researching. You know, you have a better idea than anyone else where they're going to go, but it is subconscious, perhaps. I don't yeah. know. It's really interesting. No, that's right. Yeah. And it would be really interesting when um, one of the wonderful things about the book finally the books being out in the world, um, having um, carried them around um, in my head and on paper for so long is that I have that thing in where I'll, I mean, the classic example is, is meeting a really nice hairy black cow. And and thinking, Rianne would really like that cow, you know. She, you know, she likes, you know, she's into cows. And um and and finally now I can actually kind of if I'm with somebody, I can point to the cow and go, Rianne would really like that cow, and they know what I mean. And I finally, you know, for you know, where, whereas for years people would just kind of go, Your imaginary friend would like that cow, right? You know, and it's you kind of feel that you're not far off a straitjacket sometimes. <laughs> Well, I mean, you've spent so much time with these characters and also readers like myself. Are you going to miss them? Yeah. Well, they're kind of still here. So, um, yeah, but it's, it, they, they do feel very, very real. And uh, um, I mean, I've had some amazing experiences. One, for example, um, I read at the um, Wigton Book Festival and, they, and for, the, for the gig, it was in the Whithorn um, Iron Age roundhouse yeah. that is they reconstructed a roundhouse down at, at Whithorn. fantastic i mean it's just you know it's exactly as it would have been and the hosts for the event were in full iron age costume oh, and wow. in yeah and we had a fire going and we all sat around the fireside and they were kind of you know they were weaving textiles as we as we talked and and it was just and it was you know you're in in that situation and it feels as though you know you know, you can read it, and it's as though the, the, the real people have walked into into that space. Um, and you know, so situations like that make it make it feel like, yeah, they're you know, they're they're real people somehow. So, um, so although I kind of miss them, they're, they're, I also don't miss them because they're still they're still about somehow. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Um, you've mentioned a little bit about a what you wanted to comment on in the modern world, was there anything else that even though you'd set it in the Iron Age, uh, there were things that are happening today that you thought that, you know, are there? Yeah, I, I guess I've kind of, I guess I've kind of already mentioned yeah. the, 
the, the main issues there, the, the, the slavery issue, the, the need to understand people of different cultures. And um, I mean, I think there's a, um, yeah, there's, there's a lot that we can, um, that we can learn from the Iron Age, I think both in terms of, I mean, I think one of the things that people, quite a lot of people like about my writing is that I'm, um, I'm very interested in, in how people subsisted at that time. So there's a lot of detail of precisely which herbs you would use as medicine mm. for precisely what's wrong, um, precisely which food you would be, you know, going out and collecting from the woods at that particular time of, of year. Um, and you know, so so a lot a lot of that work is is very very detailed in research that it matters that she goes out and she's digging pig nuts because it is you know um, June and that's that's what you would be able to um, pick in large quantities at that time of year and and so forth. And I think that we could learn a lot actually about how to you, to value the natural environment that we have in Scotland and all of the wild food that that yeah. grows here that people would have been able to eat then um, and. And, and kind of the ways in which people lived a basically a much more sustainable life then um, by by understanding and having a much richer knowledge of the of the natural world and how and how it could support them and I think we've in our urbanized society we've lost track of an awful lot of that um, and and think that you know if you if you're not importing tomatoes from Spain or, or wherever then there's nothing to eat you know um, and it's it's not like that so no. um, I think that's well that's kind that's of one of the things I took from it was um a you know recently there's been a, a move to foraging and all of this but the idea that you understand how um you, you can subside on what's around you but also understanding the changes in season and even down to the changes in tides and just understanding what's happening to the to the land that you are part of that and it is part of you and there's this relationship that which is not yeah. separate as we might think no, that's right. And I think, you know, there's, there has been a, a history of history, as it were, that was dominated by the, the literate um, so-called civilizations that, um, that mean that, that, you know, from, from the Greeks and then the Romans and the whole Roman invasion and everything that, that else's subsequent history of, of the British Isles has tended to lead to a narrative whereby civilization came from the Mediterranean to Britain and there was a whole bunch of grunting savages that, that have kind of gradually been civilized. And I think that all the evidence is that that is absolutely false. Yeah. And that there was a you know, highly sophisticated society has been in this part of the world for thousands of years. Um, and that there was certainly one of the things we've done in, in, the, in the projects here around the Iron Age is we've done everything from, from you know, making pots to um, doing textiles to um, and lots of feasts. We've had lots of Iron Age feasting going on. And I think people have kind of reached the conclusion that actually life wasn't so bad. Yeah. You know, I mean, there was actually, a, you know, really a good diversity of, of foodstuffs and, and people probably actually had a relatively comfortable life. Yeah, okay, we you know, didn't have Netflix and all the rest of it, but <laughs> it's not like people were somehow sort of deeply deprived. Um, and their knowledge, certainly of the landscape and of navigation and 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 so forth, was really sophisticated. Um, and and so when the idea that somehow Pythias was a sort of civilized man coming to a whole bunch of barbarians is, I just really, really wanted to to um, reject that idea and say, no, come on, there's there's a, a civilization here that um, that was just as profound and important. 
I think that's interesting because one of the things that struck me when I started reading the books was it takes a while to get your head around that because you have this idea that you know it's kind of wood covered almost <laughs> savages you know and here yeah. comes someone to save them and you almost think is this fantasy because then you start to realize oh no it's not it's history but it's just not the history that you might expect from other sources yeah no absolutely and I think it's a very important narrative. And I, I, I don't think it, to be quite honest, I don't think it's completely gone away that somehow people who live close to the land are more primitive, uh, you know, um, more stupid, <laughs> I mean, than, than people who are urbanised and sophisticated and, and materialistic. And I just think, like, oh, well, let's get rid of that. Yeah. That's, that's not true. Yeah. Um, so... What's next for you? Are you, can you say, uh, you know, is it top secret or are you working on something else? <laughs> I'm not writing a novel um, at the moment, which is interesting. I, when I finished this, it was such a big project, it lasted for years, yeah. and I um, put so much into it that I didn't immediately want to embark on another big one. Um, and I've been doing lots of poetry. So I'm supposed to be poet in residence at MBU Garden. Um, I was last last year and had some like five brilliant sessions of several weeks um, down in in MVU and um, which is a brilliant location. I, I love it. It's it's about 100 miles by land, but it's one of those places less than 30 miles by sea from 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 home. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, so I'm writing lots of poetry. Is the is the short answer and doing doing lots of interesting things, playing with words in interesting ways, um, doing little things. Um, and at some point, um, yeah, I've got two other kind of projects that are that, that I will get to at some point. One of them is a um, is a historical thing, but set in um, late eighteenth century Vienna, which is an mm-hmm. odd, which is odd um, <laughs> and very difficult. Um, and um, so, where where that will go is is um, Anybody, anybody's guess, but I and I've done quite a lot of work and research and, and things around that, but I haven't written anything which I'm satisfied with yet. Um, and that, I, for various reasons, probably can't be a novel um, because it needs a soundtrack. Um, and, um, and then there's another thing which is set in the future because uh, I've written one novel set in the future called Bear Witness, mm-hmm. um, and, I, and I might need to go back to the future again for an, for another project. So. Um, and people keep asking me, is there, um, uh, is there another book, like you said, by the time you get to the end of the lad answers, then other things are starting to happen. And is there, is there more of that? Mm. And at the moment there isn't. Right. Um, so, but. It, it would be interesting if that was the case. I have to say, I kind of already missed some of the characters as well. I just, they're so vivid. Uh, um, and I must say though, that the end of the liar dancers, you know, if you're going to leave people on a high, it's one of the most joy. The liar dance itself is one of the most joyous things to read. It was, uh, you, you know, you feel you're you're really uh, there with them. Um, well, no, great. I mean, that came about archaeologically as well because oh, really? of the fact that I mean, the split rock is the iconic image of the Ascent Crofters, you know, mm-hmm. and that you know from the buyout onwards, and um, and on top of the split rock, there is this vitrified. Um, rock, and um, which is m- interesting and mysterious. I mean, it's so it's fi- it's been fired through very intensive um, fire um, in the Iron Age, and 
and why and how and stuff is kind of anybody's guess. So it was really up for grabs as to what 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 went on there. So I had to I had to use it, um, and and it became yeah it became that that um, that piece at the end of of the book. Um, and, and it's been really nice actually people have said quite a few people who've read it have said that in the sort of the worries of the lockdown and so forth they found it a hopeful kind of um, a hopeful thing to read uh, which has been really nice that's that that makes me feel good that um, people have got some hope out of it no absolutely and, and partly it's just so nice to be taken to another place and another time and just you know uh, um, spend time with 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 your characters um mandy i think that is the perfect place to leave it so thank you so much for talking to us today oh thank you very much indeed you're a lovely person to talk to so thank you Thanks and, for uh, we will be back soon with someone completely different Cheers. <laughs>